Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Come on in, because this is Stories to Keep You Up at Night. I'm Marco Palmieri. And hello, I'm Nicole Otto. Last week, we shared the first half of this twisty Lovecraftian tale that follows a writer's search for a half-remembered story and the weird invitation he received that might shed light on it. So without further ado, here is part two of In the Garden of Ibn Ghazi, written by Molly Tanzer and voiced by Vikas Adam. I had hoped that the script would be on my bed, waiting for me like in a movie, but no. It was after I'd gotten into my pajamas and robe and was inattentively reading a book on my Kindle when a knock came at the door. It was a member of the staff, not DeVries. She wouldn't accept the tip I offered in exchange for the script, but she did tell me that she'd heard from Martin. Diaz was in stable condition, but not yet awake. It was too early to say for sure, but they thought it was some sort of food poisoning. I took Diaz's script and did another inelegant half-hop, half-plop onto the high bed. I felt a weird combination of dread and elation. At last, I had it in my trembling hands. In the garden of Ibn Ghazi, it was, as far as I knew, the only work of fiction to bear that title. Had I once read this play only to have the winds of time erode the shape of that memory into another? The focus of my master's degree had been 18th century British literature, but that meant I would have been more likely to have encountered foreign climes, not this older, and not to mention French, play. Was this the end of my struggle? A minor struggle, of course. So very minor, but a struggle nonetheless. My heart did not believe it. I have never been a great reader of plays, and anyway, this one was supposed to have been impossible to find before some exclusive auction to which I'd never in a million years be invited, much less in a position to bid on anything. With trembling hands, I opened it up to a random page and read this. In the Garden of Ibn Ghazi, scene six. The Marquise is sitting upon a bench, a picnic basket beside her. In front of her, Ibn Ghazi is wandering his garden, 
he is clearly ill at ease. He has a basket of gardening tools set to the side, and as the Marquise speaks, he should use them to tend to his plants, but conveying an air of dissatisfaction with it all. The Marquise should be light-hearted, kicking her heels, eating strawberries from the basket, making merry with the wine. Marquise. The ancient Greeks believed that attending the theater was a moral obligation. The one had a duty to the community to sit and listen, but not to judge, nor really to learn. No, what they thought crucial was for each of us to feel together. Emotion, experienced communally, was considered personally restorative. More than that, it was socially reparative. Ibn Ghazi. I weary of pruning and watering. He tosses a tool into the basket in almost childish dismay. Marquise. Let us, for the sake of argument, assume the Greeks in their wisdom were correct. What, then, is the purpose of this play? What should any of us be feeling at this point in the evening? None of this has been particularly uplifting. I think we can all agree on that. Despair is at the root of all these tales. Whether Ibn Ghazi grants requests or denies them, misery ensues. Ibn Ghazi. There is nothing for me here. Marquise. So, what could be socially reparative about despair? Despair erodes the bonds between men. It does not strengthen them. The Greeks asked this too, and they decided that to feel and to contemplate one's darkest, most powerful emotions in a social setting was in fact a form of exorcism or cleansing. Their word for this was, of course, catharsis. And while our understanding of catharsis is different from theirs, we all of us appreciate the sense of release after frustration, like a sneeze or an orgasm. I shut the script and set it aside. It's hard for me to articulate just how furious I was in that moment. The play was a fake. At first, I had chalked up the modern tone to the very recent translation, but our understanding of catharsis was just too much to be believed. Whose understanding of catharsis, exactly? The application of catharsis to psychology dates only from the 19th century. And, for that matter, who had translated this play? Upton de Vries hadn't bragged about that. <laughs> Why not, when he'd bragged about every other aspect of the production? I barely knew the man, but after less than a day here, I could be certain that if he had hired a translator at all, de Vries would have lauded that person as being of superior quality, impeccable pedigree, more than once if necessary, to get the point across. My anger quickly turned to fear. If the play was a fake, why had I been brought here? I'd been set up. Upton de Vries knew. He had to know which meant he had lured me here under false pretenses. But why? What possible reason could he have for going to such elaborate lengths? I was nobody. Sure, I'd made the leap from indie sensation to mainstream novelist, but that was really about it. I wasn't famous. Most of the big deal fantasy and horror authors out there would probably recognize my name if it came up in conversation, but that was about it. 
Other than being a regular guest on that popular, if hard to explain, horror-themed sleep aid YouTube show, Goodnight with ASMR James, that interview in the Paris Review had been a big break for me. And there had been DeVries, ready to pounce with the perfect offer to pique my interest. I felt as if I were in The Wicker Man or Murder on the Orient Express. And while I liked both, that didn't mean I wanted a starring role in either. Then again, I didn't have a lot of choice in the matter. I was in the middle of nowhere. No internet or cell reception to call a lift, and it was pitch black outside. I hadn't even seen a driveway leading to a road out of here, and who knew where such a road might go, and for how many miles. There was another knock at the door. I waited a moment, unsure of what to do, but the following softer, more urgent knock made me open up. In spite of everything, I was pleased to see rocks standing there. Golly, <laughs> they just really did it for me. <laughs> they must, for me to be so horny about them under circumstances like these. That dark hair falling across those dark eyes and that dark wisp of a mustache. What can I say? I'm only human. I came by in case you felt like reading some lines, you know, to prepare for tomorrow, they said. I hesitated. If DeVries had lured me into a trap, surely Rox was part of it. They all were. Or were they? Standing there, looking at Rox framed by the gentle golden light of the hallway, my worries of a grand conspiracy to make me do something I still wasn't sure about felt perhaps a little far-fetched. If you'd rather me go, do come in, I said, surprising myself. Not really. Well, perhaps a little. I am very much in need of your help. Oh? I have no illusions of being discovered as some sort of hidden talent, I said wryly, letting rocks inside. They were much taller than I was. I closed the door behind them, shutting it all the way. I just don't want to embarrass myself tomorrow. I'm sure you wouldn't do so under any circumstances, said rocks, but I'm happy to give you some pointers. Where are you in the script? It arrived only a few moments ago. We'll run through our scenes then. In order, Rox looked around at the lack of chairs in my room. There was just the one, old, antique, and uncomfortable looking. Would you prefer to stand as we rehearse, block it out a bit, or? I hopped up on the bed and scooched over. Oh, just come and sit down. I think we'll both be more comfortable that way. Is that so? I shrugged. Let's find out. Rox giggled and sat cross-legged on the opposite edge from me. The bed was a king, so there was a fair bit of distance between us, which I appreciated. I still wasn't sure if I wanted to go to bed with Rox. More than I already had, I mean. As attracted to them as I was, I hadn't forgotten that I was here under false pretenses. The play remained a fake, and I didn't know who else knew that. And there was only one way to find out. Do you know who translated the play? I asked, trying my best to sound casual. 
it's very interesting. The anachronisms, Rox looked wary. Anachronisms? Sure, I said. I mean, it's not trying to replicate 18th century vocabulary and cadence, that's obvious. But there are also... untimely references. Rox nodded. That's because it's both a translation and an updating of the text. Interesting choice for a play that's never been performed, or even read in the original. Upton makes the interesting choices. That's why he's so respected. He said he felt the straight translation was too archaic to engage a modern audience, so he had a playwright by the name of Mindy Blandy give it a bit of finesse. I narrowed my eyes at that name, so lacking in the most basic euphony that I suspected a fake. Awful, I know, said Rox, acknowledging my wince. What were her parents thinking? Anyway, she's quite modern in her style, so she gave it the old Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead treatment. That's a play where, I know the play, I said. DeVries didn't say anything about that. He said it had been found in a trunk. Well, we're telling everyone different things, said Rox with a shrug. I don't mean lies, of course. I just mean different fact sets. It's to build up the buzz. You're not the only person we've invited here, of course, they said. Look. Upton has a knack for a marketing angle, so as we've been rehearsing, he's been scanning the news for artists, politicians, influencers, writers, anyone who might have some sort of emotional connection to the production. Those people will then start to talk about it, with disparate stories, when it comes out, and that will plant the seeds for a viral media sensation. I looked at rocks, lanky and winsome, and wanted to believe everything they were saying. It made so much sense, laid out like that. I had mentioned the title in my interview. I'm an artsy sort with a social media presence and connections to people with a larger social media presence. At the very least, they would have set up a Google alert for everything about the production, including the title, and then, bam! I was there to be swooped down upon and in a decent position to start some conversations about it online. My fascination with the story, minor though it was, just made me even more appealing as a mark. My stomach unclenched. So, I said, happy to be more at ease. The first scene. When we read it together, do we... Do we just read? Do we gesture? Get into the role, advised Rox. If you want to move, move. But remember, you're just reading lines for Hermann. You don't have to act, just use a little inflection to give the actors something to work with. Do you smoke pot? That was, at that moment, exactly what I wanted to hear. I nearly swooned when Rox offered me a joint and a lighter. I sparked it immediately. Good, relax. Now try it with me. Rox plucked the joint out of my fingers and had a long toke and a longer exhalation. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. You have observed my lord Ibn Ghazi as he broods and frets. Observe now his apprentice they said, pitching their voice a little differently while playing the Marquise. You see a slave sold to my lord to settle a debt. It is not such a dreadful life they lead, though neither is it one many would select, given the choice. Apprentice, where are you? I said, attempting a commanding air, and incredibly enough, Rox didn't even giggle. Come forth, I have need of you. Rox scooted forward. Yes, my lord, they said, bowing as well as they could while sitting cross-legged on a bed. What troubles you? Let me take this small care from your shoulders, whatever it is, so your mind might more easily attend to matters of greater import. My blood was up now, with rocks so close. I could smell their soap, herbal and fresh, wafting off their body in the warmth of my room. They'd showered before coming over, and their polka dot pajamas hung so nicely upon them, the soft modesty afforded by the flannel in stark opposition to my preference. Tell me, apprentice, how long have my gates been shut to all who knocked upon them? I am never the most mature of individuals, but I tried my best to keep a straight face. The thing was, my own gates had been shut far too long, and I was feeling that keenly with rocks so close. Ten years, my lord, said Rox, somehow looking up at me from beneath their dark lashes. Not quite that long for me, I said aloud, and then froze, instantly regretting my quip. I had just taken another hit off the joint and could blame that, if necessary. Rox stared at me, motionless. Ad-libbing is not encouraged in this production, they said evenly, to my mortification. If you want to please DeVries, you'll stick to the script. I see. I have rarely been so embarrassed. This wasn't the first time I'd made a pass at someone who'd passed on me, but I was feeling vulnerable in general, out there in the wilderness, and I was also surprised to have misread rocks so entirely. They'd come to my bedroom, after all, and sat on my bed. Thank you. I'm glad you decided to stop by tonight to help me. For better or for worse, said Rox, softening a bit at my discomfort. And for better, I think. DeVries is very serious about this sort of thing. But if you'd care to read on, I think you'll be pleased by the script. The show must go on. I took a deep breath, tried to steady myself, and mellow my countenance. Ten years! Has it been so long? It has, my lord. I did not realize. It has seemed but a few weeks to me. You have been much pleased by your solitude, my lord. 
Maybe Ibn Ghazi felt so, but not I. Rox was still looking at me keenly. It was unsettling, for I wished to display neither my disappointment in their rejection nor my continued hope for a reprieve. Perhaps then, it is time for me to consider the petitions of those who come to beg for my help. That is, I paused dramatically, if they still come. Oh, yes, my lord, purred rocks. They come often, begging for mercy, beating themselves against the doors and high walls of your estate. Their desire for you has not diminished one bit during your sabbatical, I assure you. Poor things, I said, keeping my voice studiously neutral. If that is so, then I must answer the call. I enjoy the peace and prosperity of this city, even behind my walls, so I must give back to it. I must open my doors, even if I fear a reprise of the incident that caused me to shut them. There was a knock then, oddly, just where a knock was called for in the script. Even odder? It had sounded far off, and as if someone beat more timidly upon a far larger door than my room possessed. I looked to rocks in confusion and saw their hand hovering hesitantly above the mahogany bedstead. A ring I had not noticed glinted on their finger. A snake, eating its own tail. I didn't ask about it, or about what had been in that joint. Some of that MK Ultra LSD that one guy had warned me about, painted right onto the filter? Go you now! And see who knocks on yonder gate, I said, squinting at that line thrown in there among all the more modern phrasings. Apparently, Mindy Blandy's finessing of the script wasn't where DeVries had chosen to spend his money with this production. Let us hear what they have to say to us. Are you sure, my lord? I looked at the script. That line wasn't there. Rox was the one ad-libbing now. I looked up not even bothering to mask my indignance. But they were smiling impishly. A moment's delay, that's all, they murmured, closing the distance between us. It has been ten years, my lord. They can wait a bit longer. Sometime later, yet another knock roused us. This time, it was real. I took a deep breath of the fresh scents of a springtime garden, turned earth, new leaves, and blooming things. The heady aromas caressed me as sensually as my apprentice. I suppose we should answer that, I said, reaching for my robes. Don't you think? Yes, my lord. It was a young woman, dressed in clothes as worn and mended as they had once been fine. A low-cut parrot green dress with a stiff bodice and skirts made more voluminous by false hips beneath yards of gathered cloth. She, too, looked like she had seen better days. But while she was obviously careworn, she was still dazzling, with captivating dark hair and eyes. She stood in silence for a moment, looking from one of us to the other before clearing her throat. I have the honor of appealing to my lord Ibn Ghazi, she asked. 
I am Ibn Ghazi, said I, a bit grandly even to my own ears. Please, step into my garden where we can speak more comfortably. I was proud to show it to her and to all of those who had come to knock upon my door. And, while I try in general to be humble in all things, I must say that my visitor's wonder was not misplaced. The beauty of my garden had been my chief preoccupation for a decade, after all, and it showed in every leaf, twig, and flower. Thank you, my lord, said she, stepping across the threshold. I am honored. I did not expect my plea to be answered. It may not be, said I, as I sat upon a low and rustic bench. I patted the space next to me. Come and rest yourself in the cool shade beneath this fragrant jacaranda and tell me of your woes. It is my brother, said she as the purple blossoms sifted down around us both. Every night he disappears. In the morning, he returns exhausted, having gambled away a little more of what remains of our dwindling fortune. I fear soon we will be left penniless. I have tried everything, my lord. I begged him. I saw a lawyer about reassigning our finances to me. I even followed him into the night several times, only to have him elude me. I stroked my beard, considering this dilemma. And what would you like me to do about it? I would like you to give me your recipe for your famous powder that reveals the unseen. That way, when I follow my brother, his way will become clear to me. I looked to my apprentice. They stood off to the side, appearing thoughtful but not swayed either way by this woman's appeal. Your dilemma is a tricky one, said I. Tricky for us both. Is it, my lord? Yes. Your story is a sad one. It breaks my heart. But I cannot help you. There are too many potentials and possibilities for me to decide in your favor, so I decide not at all. The woman was indignant. I came to you with this problem, and you have the ability to solve it, which means any choice you make produces a result. To fail to act will have as many consequences as agreeing, and no man, not even you, can claim to know the true will of the universe. I paused. I felt as if an enormous weight had been lifted off my shoulders and sat up a bit straighter. My lady, I said, your words strike truer than any arrow. Your reasoning is sound. For all my cogitations upon this very matter, I never arrived at that conclusion. And much happier might I have been these last ten years if I had. Apprentice? Yes, my lord. Fetch this young woman a dose of my powder, said I. My lord is generous, said she, though guardedly, as my apprentice took their leave of us. She was beautiful, with dark hair falling over her slender shoulders to brush the top of her large breasts. I found I wanted to please her, and was happy to have found a way to do so. It is a grave thing to be an alchemist, said I. We are the only people in the universe who can create something from nothing. Not even woman can claim that. I beg your pardon. I do not seek to offend, of course. You do not. 
All I can say is that in spite of that power, I sense my lord is unhappy. But what could trouble someone such as you, who can create something from nothing? Walk with me, I said, and offered her my arm. She took it, and we ambled on together, deeper into the garden. The jacaranda was not the only tree showing off, so I thought to take my companion on a stroll beneath the absolute riot of blossoms, for the sun was at such a height in the sky to filter gently through the boughs and catch the motes of pollen as they drifted in the lazy, shadow-cooled breeze. The smells of distant herbs and the buzzing of the bees was always so intoxicating to me, and I hoped she enjoyed it, too. I will tell you, if you will listen. You see, I once dispensed remedies in the form of advice and alchemy to the people of this city. I was proud to have learned much, and proud to show it off, if I am being perfectly honest. Then one day an older man came to me. He told me he was lucky to have amassed great wealth through his business, but a life spent chasing riches had left him without wife or heir. His sudden longing for both had sent him courting, but the daughters of the nobles failed to attract his notice. Instead, he married a beauty he saw in the fish market, a girl without wealth, family, or connections. He cherished her and treated her well, gave her everything she wanted. And yet he suspected she was waiting until he was away from his home in order to flee its confines and go elsewhere, perhaps a young lover given the difference in their ages. He had asked her, but she denied it. He commanded the servants to look in on her, but they saw her neither leave nor come back. The man was desperate to find a way to force her to tell the truth, to confess her infidelity. And so I gave him some of the very powder you have requested today. So armed, he confronted her at last. His wife fell to her knees and begged forgiveness. She said if he would give her privacy in this matter, she would never leave the house again without his permission. He told her no. I removed my arm from the woman's grasp as we walked and clasped my hands behind my back. I did not wish to be touched. Even after ten years, the entire palaver disturbed me. When she would not, he used the powder upon her. She stood, disrobed, and then disrobed yet further, peeling off her human skin, which she wore like clothes, to reveal a she-lynx. With a yowl, she leaped away from him when he reached out to her and was gone through the window of her room. He looked for her everywhere, but he never saw her again, and she never came back. In the end, he killed himself for sorrow. That is a terrible story, my lord, said the woman. I see now why you retreated from the world. I had the ability to aid people, but not the wisdom to do so judiciously, said I. I blamed myself for the man's death. I could not continue as I had. I shut my doors. I gave it all up. My apprentice approached us just as we meandered back to the bench. They handed over the little bag of powder. 
I took it and gave it myself to the woman. I felt as if we had forged a connection, she by perceiving my secret sorrow, and I by telling her of it. I wanted this one more intimacy with her, however small. Thank you, my lord, said she, loosening the bag to inspect the fine granules within. And thank you for what you are about to give me, too. And with that, she tossed the powder into my face. Reveal to me that which you are most desperate to see remain concealed, cried she as I spat and snorted. Tell me the formula for this powder of yours. I had no choice. I began to recite it against my will. First, take you the horn of a chamois and grind it fine. That is your base. Put you into that six homunculus teeth, also ground fine. Make sure they are from a young homunculus, mixed with a fork carved from a harpy's femur. I kept going. I could not stop. I revealed the formula entirely, every step, every ingredient, every required transmutation and necessary reaction. After I was done, I fell to my knees in rage and defeat. The woman stole away with her knowledge as my apprentice saw to me. I got it, cried someone. It was Herman Diaz, apparently completely recovered from his terrible illness. His cheeks even had the flush of rude health to them rather than the pallor of a convalescent. He held a notebook in his hands and was finishing up scribbling something. I shook my head. I appeared to be standing in a forest just turning to fall, small bursts of gold and orange against the green-black pine boughs. But I was sure it had just been spring. I got it all. What about you, Vera? I got it too, said Vera. She was standing by my side. She was holding her phone. She'd been recording something while dressed in her lavish costume. I, too, was in costume. Robes of sapphire blue over a jacket and pantaloons of azure cloth threaded with gold, belted all together with a broad red sash. I also had pointed cloth shoes on my feet and, it seemed, some sort of cloth wrapping on my head. I did not remember donning those robes, nor could I account for their exquisite fit. Diaz, whose role I had volunteered to fill, was far taller and leaner than I. His costume would never have fit me. These had been custom made. What happened? I said, taking a step back. Where am I? I felt someone behind me. I flinched away from an obscure figure, robed and veiled. It was Rox Teasley. They unhooked the gauzy scarf covering their face. Easy, said Rox. I know you must be disoriented, but you're safe. All is well. Upton DeVries was there too, wearing a very sharp sport coat, hip t-shirt, and stiff jeans, and his big hat from the day before, the one with the absurd feather. My child, he cried, you did so well. And now you are enjoying your answers, are you not? It is your reward for the performance of a lifetime. He started applauding me. No one joined him. What the fuck are you talking about? I said, and they all gasped as if I'd slapped him across the mouth. Oh, come on, 
There is no need for profanities, said DeVries, looking miffed. We are all civilized here. Please, won't you come back with us? We can sit down and have a drink and talk. No, I exclaimed, boggling at them all. They were all acting as if my complaints were somehow unreasonable. Talk here. All right, said Rox, stepping forward. What do you want to know? Where am I? In the courtyard of Euroboros House, said Rox. We maintain a kind of forest here for our unique purposes. You would have seen it from the air as you arrived. What unique purposes? Who are you people? Why am I here? For goodness sake, give me an answer that doesn't raise ten more questions. Rox looked unsure how to proceed. Their eyes flitted to DeVries, and they shared some sort of brief, silent exchange. It matters no longer, said DeVries. I agree, said Herman Diaz. He sounded almost bored. We have what we need. Reveal whatever you like. Nobody will believe the story. I mean, nobody ever has before. My stomach nodded in that unique way it does when I realize I've been made a fool of. Of course, someone like Rox would never have looked at me unless there was some ulterior motive. Attraction had nothing to do with it. How many nobodies? I asked quietly. I didn't look at Rox. It's not like that, they said as I continued not to look at them. I was hurt. Of course I was. And the confusion I felt over what was real and what was not did not help. Had Rox and I really gone to bed together? When had I slipped into a dream? How many? You are the ninth such attempt. The ninth since 1844, ten years after this house was built by the founders of the Hentupan Society, said Rox. Hen Tupan means all is one. Yes. And indeed, all is one. Everything in the universe is made of the same stuff. Do you see? And memories are a part of that stuff, just like chemicals and sensations and experiences. So we all have the same memories, all of us. You, a star, the first drop of rain that strikes the surface lake before a storm, we are all the same. But that doesn't mean we all have an equal share, or perhaps it's that we just don't have the same experience of it. How could we? Things like deja vu are how most of us interpret the sensation of experiencing the memories of another. That fragment of song you don't know where you heard it. The queer feeling you got that one time when you saw that stranger's profile at a certain angle across a crowded room at an otherwise forgettable party. Some of these experiences stand out more than others, do they not? As for you, Rox stepped forward and took me by the hands. You brilliant creature. You possessed an enormous share of the memory of Ibn Ghazi himself when he was tricked into reciting the formula for his powder. The recipe was otherwise lost until this very moment. His apprentice died without making a record of their knowledge, and the girl perished with her brother. 
Ibn Ghazi, with his own hand, destroyed every copy after that incident. It's incredible, is it not? And so you... I shook my head. I still can't see the shape of this. How could you? This plan of ours was a cult in every sense of the word. It took us over a century to succeed. And we're no strangers to this sort of problem. The reason the Hentupan Society was founded was to make sure no alchemical knowledge would ever be truly lost. Our entire mission is to retrieve and harvest collective memories using information control, hypnosis, sometimes drugs. We've recovered 27 other so-called lost recipes during the last nearly two centuries, but this one has ever been the most delicate. We were looking for something so specific that we had to devise new techniques, including how to control all information related to Ibn Ghazi's garden in an age when almost everything can be found if one looks hard enough. Lovecraft, you see, possessed no discernible memory of the incident. He read about Ibn Ghazi and his powder in that travelogue. But for once, we did not interfere when he published The Dunwich Horror, nor when Fantasy Flight's games popularized the name to a broader population. We felt it would be good to allow a phrase or two to rattle around in pop-cultural discourse so that it might jog someone's memory. And eventually, it did. Was the powder you used on me as fake as everything else about this place? The question hadn't sounded as petulant in my mind as it did rolling off my tongue. Potato starch, Rox said it gently. But I felt the impact just the same. We didn't need the actual powder. We didn't need you to reveal what you'd prefer be concealed. I blushed, which made me angry. We just needed to liberate your memories of what you already knew from your mind. So we softened you up with a mystery that allowed us to place you physically in the same circumstances as Ibn Ghazi had been when he recited the formula for his powder. The cocktail of drugs painted on the end of the filter of that joint helped you disassociate. But how could you know I'd smoke it? We follow you on Twitter. You never followed us back. Rox shrugged. Whether the Hentupan Society succeeded in duplicating the powder of Ibn Ghazi, I do not know. I left that night by helicopter at my own insistence. Rox and DeVries implored me to stay until the morning, citing the darkness, the need to rebook my tickets, and so on. But I said I would rather stay at the Philadelphia airport than in Euroboros house, which, thinking back on it, was probably the most concise way I could have expressed the level of contempt I felt for them all. When I was left at PHL by the helicopter pilot, I finally emailed my nearly frantic mother an apology for worrying her, full of explanations for my silence as false as the pretenses that had brought me to the Poconos. I made use of the internet in a few ways, actually. I looked, and was unsurprised to discover, that the names of all the actors were real. But none of them had been anyone I'd met. And I looked, but I could find no Twitter account among my followers that seemed like it belonged to Rox Teasley or the Hentapan Society. I briefly considered protecting my tweets, but decided against it. They had already obtained that which they wanted from me, and my latest short story was due to be published in a week. 
I'd need to promote it on social media. As we idled on the jetway, I fell asleep in the first-class seat DeVries had rebooked for me and dreamed of Ibn Ghazi. I was him again, curled into myself and weeping as I lay upon the floor of my luxurious bedchamber in my fine home. In that moment, I was thinking of my failure with the old gentleman and his young lynx bride and all my other errors in judgment. I felt the weight of my mistakes pressing down on me, a current of regret. How much evil I had wrought in my terrible arrogance. Eventually, my apprentice found me in my misery. The gentle touch of their hands roused me, and they coaxed me back to myself. I reached out with Ibn Ghazi's hand and unhooked my apprentice's veil, only to awaken with a start when I revealed the mercurial, alluring visage of Rox Teasley. I stared at the cloud-shadowed plains below, wondering if I had brushed against another memory of Ibn Ghazi's, or if it had been merely a dream. Then again, does it even matter? All is one. I haven't just seen the evidence of that, of course. I've been it. I've told a few people this story since it happened, and now I am telling you for reasons we are both well aware of. You know I never went to the press, and no, I never tried to track them down to seek revenge. I'm still not sure if they wronged me, really. There is nothing for me in Euroboros house, or within the wild, small garden it protects. But now you may go, or at least try to go, if you wish. I'm pleased to help you indulge your desires with regard to the Hentupan society, but the time has come for you to indulge me. Give me the draft of forgetting you promised me, so I may erase all memory of the Garden of Ibn Ghazi from my mind. It was never mine to begin with. I shall be glad to be rid of it, for I suspect once that phrase is gone, so shall go many things associated with it. Putting it behind me is, I am sure, for the best. So there's a story behind the story, which you can look up online, but the gist of it is that it was inspired by the writer's real-life experience of coming across the title in the Garden of Ibn Ghazi and being absolutely <laughs> convinced it was a story she'd read at some point in the past, but was unable to find any reference to it online until she decided to write the story herself. Amazing inspiration. I mean, it does really sound like a classic novel. Like, that title just just has that sensibility to it. This one just felt to me like a Ouroboros of memory. Am I saying that right? Where you have a snake eating a tail here. Yep, yep, you yeah. got it. Um, what struck me about this one is that it's set in contemporary times, but the feel of the writing and the narration is what I imagine Lovecraftian is. Like I said, I haven't read him, but it also struck me as very reminiscent of Agatha Christie in some ways, yeah. or even like going further back, Poe. Like, sure, yeah. sure. I mean, you know, they weren't contemporaries, but, you know, the, yeah. obviously... You know, there are certain ways of writing in the last couple of centuries that that no longer carry over to mm -hmm. now unless they're deliberate homages to, the, yeah. to, to those, which is what Molly likes to do yeah. when it comes to love. Just the so, like the sentence structure, yeah. even, or like the way this, in which they address each other or like the inner monologue of the main character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no, it's very deliberate. And also, I got to say, Vikas Adam 
got so into it. His performance is just amazing. I was held captive by the emotional range he brought to it and the range of voices and accents he used. Just incredible work. It's tricky, too, because there are so many different elements to bring to life in this. There's the letter, the script, the actual story itself. And he's tasked with making all those differentiations. Yep. Yep. Totally agree with you. Well, I guess that'll do it. Nicole, thank you as always. Shucks, thank you. I try. And listeners, if you love audio short fiction as much as Marco and I do, please drop us a five-star review wherever you listen. And be here next time when we'll have another chilling story to keep you up at night. Until then, pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 89, features In the Garden of Ibn Ghazi, Part 2, by Molly Tanzer. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Kaylin West. Associate produced by Angela Yee and Devin Shepard. An executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Mary Asadolahi. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Nicole Otto. Performed by Vikas Adam. Audio edited by Corey Barton. Additional editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring drummer Andrew Niven, and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.